What's happening, everybody? And welcome back to another episode of Rapping with Reef Bum. I'm your host, Keith Berkelhammer. So today I have the pleasure of wel welcoming hobbyist, a very well-known hobbyist, Steve Wiest. What's going on there, Steve, man? How you doing? Oh, great. Hi, Keith. Good talking to you again after our visit at Restock. Yes, yes. So um, Steve and I met for the first time at Reefstock in um, Colorado back in early March, and we had a really interesting, lengthy conversation. So I'm really psyched to have you on the uh, on the show, man. So just for those that don't know Steve, his thousand-gallon reef tank was one of the most iconic reef tanks of its time. Very inspirational tank. He took uh, a break from keeping reef aquariums, but is now back with a stunning 400 gallon tank that's right behind him and i was saying before we got on the uh, the live stream tonight that is the best backdrop any guest has ever had on this show so whatever you have uh, done steve to to get that uh looking the way it has you know it's, it's probably just the beauty of the uh, of the tank itself but you did a kick-ass job with the uh, with the lighting so we'll uh, we'll talk both about that old thousand gallon tank as well as the uh, the 400 gallon his current uh, reef tank Check out his website. It's uh, called uh, OregonReef.com, and it chronicles his uh, reef keeping journey. It's not a fancy website, right, uh, Steve? But it's got a lot of information from, on it. From 2004. <laughs> Come on. It looks it. <laughs> it looks it. But it's it's the text, right? It's all about the text, and you've got some some pictures of the old uh, system on there. So it's uh, go check it out. OregonReef.com. Com. So before we start chatting with Steve, I want to thank the sponsors of the show, Bulk Reef Supply and Ecotech Marine. I really appreciate these companies supporting the live stream, and I also appreciate all the support from you folks out there tuning in. I see we have a whole bunch of people coming into the uh, chat. Thanks for joining us. I see we've got ACI Agriculture. What's happening there? Chris and Amanda Meckley, Doghouse Reefer, Trevor King. Yes, impressive reef for sure there, Steve. And... Um, Corey Page. So, um, yes, and as per usual, I encourage you folks to post your comments and questions in the chat. We'd love for this to be a, uh, an interactive experience for those of you that are watching at home. Yes, thanks, Trevor. Smash that like button. That's very important because the more people that smash that like button, the more people are going to find this live stream. Greg Carroll's in the house. What's happened there, man? Good to see you. Good to see you. Um, all right. So, Steve, yeah, we um, we talked at length, met for the first time at Reefstock, and I really did enjoy that um, conversation. You have a, um, a lot of original and unique ideas when it comes to keeping a reef tank. So... I'm definitely excited to, to get into all that with you, and I'm excited to let the folks out there that haven't heard about your methods hear about them tonight. But first, Steve, just um, kind of give us a sense in, in terms of your reef-keeping journey, how it all began and how you ended up where you're at today with a 400-gallon tank. Oh, okay. I don't know quite how far we're going to go back. but <laughs> That's up to you, man. Uh, I will say my interest in keeping saltwater aquariums, I can trace that back to basically August of 1973 when I was 10 years old and took a family vacation to Maui, mm. stayed at the Sheraton and there at Kanapali on Blackrock, 
spent the whole week snorkeling off uh, Kanapali Beach and just enthralled by everything there. So that kind of planted the bug, let the spark, so to speak. Um, after that, it was probably three or four years later, I had my first tank. I never kept freshwater. So freshwater is completely alien. You skipped that whole step. Skipped the whole step, went right to my first tank. It was a 55-gallon, and that's back with, uh, you know, a crushed uh, oyster shell and under gravel plates and lift tubes and uh, that kind of stuff. And I had that for a number of years. And then uh, that graduated in the early 80s to a 125. And that was kind of the training wheels because now we're in the mini reef uh, boom and wet dries and DLS spirals and spinning, you know, wet bars and all that kind of stuff. Skimmers coming online. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I had that tank through the 80s when I was going to college. Uh, and when I graduated uh, in college, I graduated college in 1989 with an aerospace engineering degree. Of course, that was the same year the Russians gave up and the Berlin Wall came down. No jobs in aerospace. <laughs> so I got involved with construction, moved to Oregon in 1991, and I've been in construction, uh, residential construction, mostly high-end, but some track, uh, ever since. And uh, after a big project, uh, in fact, I was commuting down to Southern Cal to subdivision down there that the Southern Cal people know in Laguna Beach called Emerald Bay as a big $4 million house that I tore to the ground and rebuilt. Mm -hmm. After that one, uh, and a little bit of a windfall from that, I go, you know, I'm going to put in a big aquarium. <laughs> <laughs> so when I got back from that, uh, that's when uh, started with the large aquarium. That would be uh, basically 2000, 2001. So this it all is, took off from there. This is the 1,000-gallon uh, the tank you're talking about? Uh, actually, it started off as a 500. Okay. And that's the one that won a tank of the month on Reef Central. I think it was maybe March of 2002 type thing. Okay. And this is the start of the internet. I would have, you know, I was still on dial up and everything else <laughs> back then. So, you know, so the, it was way different than it is now. Uh, although my skills haven't changed. Um, so uh, after the, I ran the 500 for a number of years and went, you know, you know, it would be better than 500. 850. <laughs> so oh, I so took it you, down. You went to 850. Yeah. So that was the second tank. The big one was actually dimension wise 850 gallons. But you know, the sump was another 300 gallons. Right. So uh, uh, I took that tank down, expanded the uh, tank uh, stand and all for it because it's really elevated the way my house is situated. Uh, and then so the 850 started, I want to say around 2004 ish type thing. And that ran uh, a number of years. And then I decided, you know, I did a lot of scuba diving up here in the Pacific Northwest. I want to do a cold water tank. So I added another cold water tank and took down the uh, 850 at that time. You know, we even considered that time moving. There were some life changes going on there as well. But I started the tank you see behind me here as originally as a cold water tank because of all my scuba diving experience because I could collect my own stock out of Puget Sound. So, uh, and that ran for a number of years. There's a video on YouTube of that system and the critters involved with it, which is really kind of interesting because it's unique and different from what yeah. we're used to doing here. Yep. And uh, uh, after that, uh, again, took another break. Uh, uncertainty again, especially with the economic downturn and how it affected my industry from 2008 on. So, um, and then um, I was just about ready to come back into the uh, hobby, and then I had a personal kind of crisis. I 
actually fell from my roof, which resulted in the amputation of my right leg, which I think we talked about at Reefstock. Mm. So um, uh, that kind of delayed things. And I actually came back, decided to come back into the hobby after looking at my empty tank for seven, eight years, sitting in the garage every day, collecting nothing but spiders. Um, you know, I'm going to go back to my roots and make a mixed reef tank. What the hell? Everything is here that I need. It also I have to do is add water, add a heater, and add lights, which was different from a cold water it, tank. It, and it's amazing that you held on to everything because, you know, when I've taken a couple breaks myself from, from reef, reef keeping, but, um, you know, I didn't hold on to a lot of stuff. I didn't hold on to the, uh, to the tanks when I took those breaks. And, and uh, you know, some of the equipment I did, but um, it sounded like, man, you had everything kind of like on mothballs and ready to rock and roll just because uh, you exactly. knew. You knew. Exactly. Well, and there's not much of a market for larger stuff. It yeah. takes a unique uh, it takes a new, unique buyer. So it's just like, you know, I didn't need the money for it or anything else. And it's like I had a hard time selling. It was a hard time selling that. So it just sat there in the corner of the garage for a number of years. And it was easy to stick, uh, start back up. Minimal investment, lights and a heater. Started back up. So I mentioned at the beginning your 1,000-gallon your reef was iconic and all that stuff. That actually is an 850-gallon tank. Was that? Yeah. Okay, with the sump, it's 1,000. So um, I just want to kind of show some shots of the uh, of this 1,000-gallon system. And what we're looking at now, because you're not watching along on YouTube, is the, um, the actual acrylic aquarium itself. Mm -hmm. And it uh, mm -hmm. looks like there's a guy on the forklift driver there that's ready to raise it up to the yeah. uh to the stand which is right there in your garage he, he was actually my framer oh really <laughs> my house framer <laughs> free labor beautiful <laughs> you want your check free labor come over and do this beautiful so we're looking at this um this basically <clears throat> it looks like a sump room in the garage with a couple of big doors and the tank is on the top and you've got correct you've got um it's uh, it's all blacked out on the top there so this is a very unique thing because you do live in northern Oregon and uh, the uh, the temperatures there. Well, we were just talking about this before we got on the uh, the live stream. I guess you guys went through a big little heat wave for um, for your part of the uh, the state there, up to 108 degrees. But typically, it doesn't get that uh, that warm, right? You're you were saying you rarely get above 80 degrees. Yeah, our typical summer highs would be averaging in the 80, but we can have short bouts in the 90s or even 100s. Uh, last year, basically everybody thought the world was going to end because we actually one day got up to 116. It's just like, okay, this is not Holy Phoenix. Holy crap, man, 116. Yeah, really? That's our state record now. But prior to that, the state record was 107. So, And that went back to like the 40s. Wow. So, uh, yeah, So, it, but it's rare, and they're short-lived, uh, usually only uh, – a few days so um but still it's, it's a problem that's why most homes up here don't have air conditioning i'd say about 30 percent of homes up here have air conditioning so when something like this comes people get pretty cranky <laughs> that's gotta suck you know if you get up to 108 <laughs> degrees and you don't have any ac i guess uh, people are uh, sleeping outdoors or something keeping uh figuring out a way to, to stay cold so what kind of challenges were there um or are there for keeping a um a sump and all the equipment in a garage. Well, first off, um, this is an operational garage. Now, I do have the benefit. This is a little larger garage, a three-car garage, about 1,200 square feet, and I have 16-foot ceilings. So it's a fairly large volume of uh, air in here. Uh, and, of course, you have the temperature differences that you wouldn't have in an acclimated house. 
Uh, and it's an active garage, so I got cars going in and out. Mm. So I have to deal with fumes. I don't want them, my skimmers, sucking in fumes. Now, in the Pacific Northwest here, we don't do basements. We're not cold enough for digging down. We're on crawl spaces. And generally, we'll have a couple, three feet of crawl space underneath our uh, first floor. So I utilize that. My skimmer pulls from there. And, uh, so, and that's basically sucking in ambient outside air through the foundation vents. So the other thing I do is in the garage, I have a large uh, attic exhaust fan that I also run mm. uh, in the summer 24-7, but in the winter, so it doesn't freeze out too much, maybe 12 hours a day. And it'll turn over this entire air volume in about 20 minutes. Wow. And it has a, I have an intake filter on the other side over here from my crawl space, so it sucks air from there across the garage and out she goes. So it's fully ventilated with ambient air, keeps it a little uh, about 20 degrees cooler in here than outside in summer and probably about 15 degrees, 15, 20 degrees warmer in here uh, when we're really cold outside in the winter because it's pulling that modified air from my crawl space because the ground temperature is you know, 55 degrees plus or minus. So uh, as I even sit here, I can feel a breeze coming off here and going that way out towards the fans. So. That, that is key, you know, to, to have good recirculating air wherever you're having a, yeah. a, a fish tank and, and your equipment with that fish tank. Absolutely. Because, you know, if you're in a room and it's all sealed up, you know, I live in Vermont and in the wintertime, uh, my windows are shut tight. So uh, I had to add a, an air exchange unit to the, uh, to the basement where all my, my tanks are, my, my sumps and all that stuff. And um, yeah, so that runs all the time, basically starting in um, mid-October into like even the beginning of May, where uh, I will have all the windows shut and be running that stuff. And, and that, that's great in terms of the pH for me because that, that's, um, you know, before I started running that and after uh, I, I think I saw like a 0.2 pH point increase with that air exchange unit. So, yeah, yeah, very, very uh, important thing to do in terms of having that uh, recirculating air for sure. Um, let me sure uh, we'll, oh. go ahead, man. Oh, uh, I'm sure we'll talk about pH, but uh, that is the first kind of domino to fall for helping with pH is get ambient air here and sucking not uh, you know CO2 laden air. Yes. So it's the first one. There are other things you can do, which I employ on here to get the pH that I strive for, but uh, without that, it wouldn't be possible. It's the first step. Yeah, let's definitely dig into that a little bit um, in a bit, but I, I just want to kind of show off the, um, the old system since it was such a, um, an incredible system. Here, here's the lighting. And uh, so I'm counting uh, metal halides. Let's see, you've got this big, uh, looks like a wooden canopy. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. Am I counting that correctly? Twelve metal all, halide. All four. All four hundreds. Yeah. Four hundred watts. What do you got? What 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 bulbs were there? There was as a mix because it depends on where they were located over the tank. There was 10k ushios, 14k phoenixes, and 20k radiums. That must have been one hell of an electricity bill, huh? Yeah, PG still sends me mail. We miss you. <laughs> <laughs> and and you uh, must have had a kick-ass chiller thing uh, going on there as well. I would I would imagine. I had two two horsepower chillers, and they would I would uh, basically uh, stagger them. One month one would run, one month the other one would run. And those chillers were outside the house completely. I had them out, built outside and plumbed in so they can truly dump all the uh, uh, heat from it to, to the outside. So, um, 
Yeah, I did a shitty job in terms of um, engineering, putting my chiller in, into place because I, I've got it in my sump room. And so mm. the exhaust goes right into the uh, into the sump room. It doesn't it doesn't <laughs> it doesn't vent anywhere other than inside the, the room where I've got my two sumps plus three frag tanks. So yep. it's just uh, you know it was a bonehead thing. I actually, you know, not a bonehead thing. I just didn't want to spend the money to have it vented to the outside. And uh, good thing because I, I don't really use it anymore anyway. So it was just poorly uh, designed. But um, yeah. So it uh, it definitely makes a difference in terms of uh, the venting of the uh, of the chillers. The um, <clears throat> I want to so speaking of sumps, I want to show off your and and this is going to be something we'll talk a lot about, uh, Steve. It's just the the clean the cleanliness the the um, of your setup, right? In terms of the equipment, it just looks like it's brand spanking new and and um, a lot of attention to detail. I don't see any, um, you know, detritus or, um, you know, any signs of anything. It's just, it's just very well built and very well thought out. Yeah, thanks. Uh, obviously, uh, I have a problem. I am OCD. <laughs> <laughs> and if I see anything like that, it's, I feel compelled that, okay, I've got to fix it. It's a problem. I have to fix I have to clean this. I have to fix this. And it's a hobby, so I don't mind. You know, I don't look at it as a chore. It's a uh -huh. part of the part of the gig. But if it isn't that way, it bothers me. I, it, it kills the enjoyment I have for the hobby. So, so that's just me. Well, that's a good trait to have in reef keeping because um, it can it can kind of like get a little uh, squirrely, right? You know, if um, if you're not organized and my, my setups can get a little squirrely, but um, yes, I, I commend you in terms of the cleanliness and the organization of the uh, of the sump room there. So let's just kind of scroll through some of the uh, the pictures and I think people are gonna recognize this, uh, this old uh, tank. And um, talk to us, Steve, about the aquascaping for this uh, old setup here. It's, uh, it's such a beautiful, natural-looking type of reef tank. Talk, talk to us what you did about the, uh, the rock work in there. Okay. It's really interesting, actually, the way it evolved. Because when I had the 500, I was like, okay, it's just great. You know, it's nice. Although I had too much rock in there and not enough open space. And I was like, you know what really makes tanks is front-to-back depth. And nobody has it other than public aquariums. And I have the ability to do that for the space that I had and the construction skills that I have. So I go, you know, I'm going to put in a tank that people don't have, more of a cube. Basically, it was six feet by eight feet, six feet the left to right dimension, 30 inches high, front to back, eight feet. So that creates a whole new dimension. So how the aquascaping evolved, you know, people think, oh, that's a great, a canyon, great concept. Well, it kind of grew out of that, out of necessity. If you look at the tank, the way it is set up, I have a platform all around the tank. So I can service the tank by standing on that platform. People say, how can you reach? I could reach every inch mm, of that tank. Interesting. You know, because imagine your tank sitting on the ground. Now how much can you reach rather than sitting on a ladder? So from the left side, I could reach basically, you know, 36 inches into the tank. Well, from the other side, I could reach 36 inches <laughs> into the tank. There's the six-foot width. So I could reach everything, and if I have the center basically with nothing but sand that I really need to get to, I don't have to get there. Yeah. So the design kind of evolved as a 
means of being able to access, make everything accessible in the tank. And I had a hard time reaching the middle. Well, just don't put anything there. Just be an open space sand area. And then I also, back to my old days, and I used to work at Disneyland and Force Perspective and whatnot. That's why it kind of is cone-shaped, where you kind of gives it an even greater depth by having it kind of like a, a funnel wide in the front, tighter to the back. So uh, Great Bearded Reef, Paul, the moderator, um, is asking if this system was featured in Mike Paletta's Ultimate Marine Aquarium book. He uh, thinks he remembers it back in the day. Is that, was that featured, uh, Steve, yeah. in that book? Yes, it was, actually, but not this one. The 500-gallon one was, oh. was in, was in Paletta's book. So. Gotcha. Yeah, so that's uh, when his book out, I had the 500 one out. Uh, I hadn't gone to this one quite yet. Well, I'll tell you, you know, your, uh, your aquascaping of that older tank certainly inspired me. You know, I think pretty much every large reef tank that I had, and I'm talking about, um, you know, in the 180 to 225 range, that's, I've, I've never gone bigger than 225. I'm not as bold as, as nearly as bold as you are. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I've always had like two islands, and I, I love that, um, you know, kind of um, gap in between the, the swim throughs. So, sure. and, and I also am big proponent in terms of having the uh, widest aquarium possible. And so I've, um, I've had tanks that are 30 inches uh, wide and, and my latest tank, my peninsula tank is 36 inches wide. And I, you know, I agree. I think it just really opens up the aquascaping so much, sure. the more depth Absolutely. that you have, especially in a peninsula tank, I think. So this one here is 36 inches. 36 inches. Inside dimension, so outside 38, but so inside uh, 36. And, and lo and behold, that looks very familiar in terms of that aquascape. <laughs> I think it's just the camera angle, but uh, it does have elements. This is actually a, a pretty unique. I kind of came up with this uh, aquascaping thing. I wanted to do something a little bit different than what traditional, because this tank operates as a peninsula tank, even though it's only viewable on two sides. Uh, but it operates because it has the overflow on this side, on the end, I can just kind of do this. And then you can see that behind that panel is where the overflow is. Gotcha. So uh, it operates a little bit differently. I wanted to do something different with the aquascaping on this one. Uh, everybody does the same thing. Uh, for all the peninsula tanks I did, they basically put a little ribbon of rock down the middle and put all the corals on them, including Jake when I went and saw his and both his uh, his uh, Red Sea and his water box. I went, oh, great. Same <laughs> as everybody else. <laughs> different, different. Fact, when the first time that I uh, decided to come back, he was my first call. I called him up says, because he and I kept in contact and visited each other, even when I wasn't in the hobby, for, you know, taking a uh -huh. break. And if he was my first call, and I went, you know, um, I want to do something different. He said, what are you doing coming back? And I go, well, I'm going to go mixed reef, because he's asking me, you know, what I was going to come back as. And I goes, oh, okay, great. Let me know when you hit the I'll give you corals, blah, 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 blah. But what are you going to do? I go, I want to do something different with the aquascape. I want to do something vertical. I want to do something with pinnacles. I want, I'm tired of people saying the Rockwork can only go up 20% of the tank or 25% of the surface. I want to bring rockwork to the surface. And I want more vertical surfaces because I think it'll create interesting micro environments from both lighting and flow and everything else that we can keep different things. Uh, and it'll also create a lot of negative space and swimming and fish can circumnavigate. And, and by the way, I'm showing things, the video so. of the 400-gallon tank you put together for us. Oh, yeah. oh okay, great. Keep going. So uh, it is unique in that respect, but <clears throat> it start, it's basically started off with this piece right here, this uh, rock structure here onto my right here. Uh, and that is a single rock. 
and actually it came out of my cold water tank. It's actually basalt. Oh, really? And so, yeah, it's actually out of Puget Sound. So it's basalt, and basically it's a bowling ball. It has no <laughs> porosity at all. It's probably 85, 90 pounds. And I cut the base off it, uh, and I stood it up vertically. Plunk! And I went, oh, that fits perfectly. It takes me right up to the surface. It has some interesting things on it. All I had to do was add some... Uh, kind of rocks around the bottom to soften it a little bit, kind of get rid of that kind of Easter Isle effect uh -huh. with a tiki sitting there. So, uh, but it's really interesting in how that creates micro environments going down. Up top, you have, you know, spathulata, microcladis, um, uh, humulus, a gemificara, all my highlight, high flow areas. Those things, last time I put a par meter on it, uh, I was looking at basically 1200 micromoles wow. up here. Wow. Up here, and then when I get down to here, you know, I'm down to you know 250, 300 down the bottom, about 200 because how everything shades everything else, including creating caves which are basically zero for my non-photosynthetic stuff, and my flow is basically a gyre but goes from top to bottom, not left to right. So those guys take the brunt of the flow, which is what they do in nature as well. So my highest flow area is with my high flow corals. And uh, along with my gig carpet on the backside, who catches the benefit of it as well. He likes the highlight too. Love so. the carpet and enemy. Uh, yeah, so uh, that type of aquascaping created little micro environments throughout the whole tank. And it's really worked out well. I didn't know how it would work out or how it would look. And what was fascinating to me is when I told Jake I was going to do that, he went, I'm doing the same thing. <laughs> what the hell? I just came up with it. How could you be doing the same thing? <laughs> He goes, yeah, I'm going to be doing that. You can take a look at it when you come uh, to visit the studio, and which we can talk about later, because when I went there, I went, mm, yeah, okay, so not so much. It's a little different. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit different. We were, we were not to. We were talking apples and oranges. So, uh, but, uh, so that's how this evolved with basically columns and bombies where the fish can circumnavigate around each one. They can get everywhere around here, including behind over here on that side. They can get behind there and around. So uh, it's fish don't have to swim back and forth in this tank. They're th they can swim through and around the reef a little bit more naturally. So, yeah, we're still running through the, uh, we're about halfway through the, uh, the video, Steve, and, uh, sure. and we're seeing, you know, just, it's amazing in terms of the diversity of corals that you have in this. It's a true mixed reef tank, right? Because you've got um, you've got the carpet anemone, you've got the ritterize, you've got the anemones in there. I see a lot of ganies. I see um, what are those um, the the, uh, the the sun um, polyp uh, corals. Yeah. Um, Dendrophilia, yeah. right? Um, a lot of zooanthids. You know, you don't seem to be a lot. You don't of seem to be concerned about the zooanthids <laughs> going on. You know, and that's been my experience too in terms of uh, zoas. Is that, you know, they don't seem to harm the other uh, corals, and um, so yeah, you can kind of like let them go. Um, yeah. Well, here's an interesting story. As you know, I, I just created that uh, video a couple weeks ago, and. This big rock here that I have is basically a triangular rock. You can kind of see this face and you see the other face, but you can't see the third face. I had no idea what was going on there because it was just flat. I set it up that way. I didn't see what was going on there until I was filming with the in-tank GoPro oh. and filmed the backside and went, where did all you guys come from? <laughs> Holy crap. It's filled with zoos. I was like, okay, my regal better start getting a taste for zoos or I'm going to be overrun with them. That's right. You've got a regal in so, there and you've got like a ton of uh, zoanthids. How, how did you like manage correct. that? I mean, geez. 
Well, he doesn't touch them. I've never seen him bite one. I've got an emperor in there, a morshidal, wow. and a regal, which are all questionable fish. Yeah. All of them just want their frozen, their nori, and their scallop, and they don't look at anything else. Um, intrinsic reap, still inspiring the hobby after all these years. Flawless. Yes, I, I agree. Uh, Brian's reap, does he ever frag that system? <laughs> what, what? Both intentionally yeah, and unintentionally. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> um, I also noticed that um, there was a very blue acro in there, the Oregon blue torque. Talk to us about exactly. that. That's obvious, obviously my favorite uh, coral. It's the only kind of what I consider untouchable coral. The other thing this tank, this system has, and a lot of my old 850 was, there was nothing cutting edge or extraordinary or designer or anything about the corals. We're talking Milka Stylos, uh, Bali Green Slimers, Microclatus, Cumulus, Jerem Vicara, or Gems. Um, you know, there's nothing, there's no designer corals in here. There's no Walt Disney's. There's no Angry Birds. There's none of that kind of stuff in here. Um, I prefer what appeals to me visually as they grow. I'm not really interested in the small stuff. So uh, everything in here is pretty common. You know, there's nothing in here that's really designer in here at all. So I just kind of let it grow out. So, um, yeah, so that's kind of the way the system is set up. Probably the most designer corals I have are the ones that Jake gave me. You know, when I, when I went to him, uh, back to the Oregon Blue Tort, uh, the reason I went to visit him, this would have been uh, spring 2022, yeah. And uh, he wanted a few frags of mine because my Oregon Blue Tort is protein infected. And I got it, it was the first coral I put in the tank back in 2020 when this tank was started, December of 2020. And uh, it's just an inch and a half frag. And uh, it uh, had a small little wine, green wine stain on there. And I knew nothing about this. So I took a photograph to Jake. He sent, sent it off to him. And he goes, wow, it's protein infected. I'll be really interested to see, you know, how it grows out. And then, of course, I got the tutorial of protein infections and everything and what, else what is the, uh, the, the cliff notes in terms of a protein infected coral? Uh, he was saying it's mostly uh, going to be a, a, a green pigment of the, um, and it probably got infected from whoever brought in that frag, and it got infected from it, absorbed that protein uh, from another green coral. Maybe it was a bacillopora, maybe it was whatever it was, but it took it into its tissues as its own hmm. and then grows from there. So it's not uh, grafted where you're basically gluing two pieces together. It's a part of its uh, biology. So it's interesting how they grow out. And in this case, that little kind of dots on a couple coralites uh, grew out into a whole section here that's green-ish. It's still mottled. It still has blue in it. The polyps are still blue like an Oregon tort, but the whole section is green. So uh, that was the reason I uh, went out there was to take uh, him a few frags of that because he wanted a part of the, the protein-infected areas to grow out. So, And then, of course, you know, I didn't want anything from him or anything, but on the way home, you know, it was the last day in there, and he goes, okay, here, I got this for you and this for you and take some of this and take what some did, of this. Uh, so, what, what did you it, uh, score from Jake? Uh, I have his Immortal Tort, I have his Hoaxamai, his Crystal uh, Experiment, yeah. uh, Humulus, Gem, uh, Samacora, I think that's it, I think there's another one. Oh, there's Sweet a, uh, around the corner, yeah, around the corner there, there was a uh, Pacillopora Edu, kind of like a cat's paw. Yep, yep. Uh, that you'd see kind of growing in Hawaii yep. type thing. Is that so, the, yeah. uh, the so bright pink one? Uh, mine is bright green, oh, okay. but they can be yeah. pink. Uh, his was uh, that one. And actually, it was a colony he was actually buying at the time, a small little colony at uh, Mile High Reefers, I think it was, that we were at. 
And he just basically cut it in half and said, here, take this half. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so uh, now it's like, okay, I'm really kind of glad that happened because I kind of have something that kind of is important to me now. A couple so. of comments from the viewers. Uh, Chris at ACI um, commenting on the corals that you selected there, uh, Steve, um, and Tank. Corals you can appreciate from across the room for sure. Um, exactly. Gene Plotkin, uh, Steve's 850 gallon, still the best tank I've ever seen. Spent a lot of time back in the day looking at it. Good old Reef Central days. Yeah, that was just like a really truly inspiring tank. Do you are, are you? Um, where, how would you say this tank, your current tank, stacks up to the 850? Would um, would you say that you are um, as pleased in terms of where it's at currently? Do you think it is going to be a better reef tank than what you had? You know, I mean, I personally. For my tanks, I, I can kind of like say, you know, I think this is like the best tank I've ever had type of thing. Is, is that something that you ever think about? Well, I really don't because it's apples and oranges. You're talking something less than half the size mm, of the other. Yeah. So your opportunities for what you can do are so much less. One of the reasons that I uh, kind of appreciate this tank is it's much more relatable to everybody else's tank out there. This tank dimension, although still a little on the larger side, it's still roughly similar proportions to everybody else's tank out there. Whereas my other one was basically a small closet, <laughs> you know, so it is not relatable to anybody else. So when you have that much space, it's pretty hard to screw it up uh, visually. <laughs> you have so much room. To now do. listen, man. In you got you, you got you to have a touch. You got to have a touch for, for something <laughs> like that. And and obviously you've got the talent yeah. and the um, what do they call it? The um, the uh, not the green thumb. The uh, the blue thumb. You know. Yeah. So um, uh, all right. There's so much to talk about here, Steve. But um, somebody I saw a comment in the uh, in the chat about um, flowing a peninsula tank. There is a question from Problem Prone uh, Reef Boom. Is it possible to have powerheads only at one end of a five-foot peninsula and achieve good random flow, or should I put some on the viewing panel? And I have two MP40s and two Hydros gyros on one end now. So, you know, if, if you weren't on the show right now, Steve, we could we could talk about, uh, you know, putting putting uh, powerheads on the uh, viewing end panel of a peninsula tank. I mean, I've, I do it. I, I've got a six-foot-long peninsula tank, and I've got two MP40s on the viewing end panel. But... But Steve has this talent of not having any visible power heads or wires in his um, tanks. And um, we talked at length about this at Reefstock. And I'm going to show a, um, a picture of the circulation chamber. We've got a Versa pump in there. So that's kind of a, uh, a bit of a behind the, um, the, it's behind the panel. I guess you've got a panel that covers that up. But talk right here to my talk left. Talk to us about what you do in terms of um, hiding all the power heads and wires and, and, and such a clean look. Okay, so first off, I can't possibly stomach any visual pollution in the tank. So that's no plumbings, no power heads, no wires. To me, that is a zit on the Mona Lisa. I just not. That is not going to be in my DNA to do. So I will find ways around it. You are unique, sir. And you I... are very unique in that sense. <laughs> I don't know anybody else that can do it as well as you can do that. So I designed this system. We're back to my cold water system is uh, designed at how I did it. But again, the flow is basically top to bottom. And everybody's uh, peninsula tank, and mine being no different, has a center overflow at one end, which creates two alcoves on the left and right. Everyone has it. And that's just dead space. Well, when I designed this tank and had it built, uh, I had that front wall, rather than creating uh, the two alcoves, just go straight across, and now you have two wet chambers. 
And uh, uh, that created a spot where I could put two now very powerful. I don't use, quote, power heads. I'm actually using Vectra L2s. So Vectors. these are pretty powerful pumps. And, you know, we're talking 3,000 plus gallons per hour shooting through theirs. And there's three of them in the tank. So that's creating the flow on a, you know, the Mobius uh, reef crest. So it's uh, variable, variable the flows. And it's powerful enough between those three when they sync up. I get a whirlpool at the other end. It'll go all the way down. So to the mechanically, what's going on? You've got these <clears throat> chambers. You've got the the pumps that are pointing downwards. All three pumps are pointing downwards. And and no, no, no that's the intake. That's the intake. That's the okay, intake. so that's the intake. Yeah. I got you. All right. The nozzle is pointing out through the wall, which is going through rock work. Wow. And when I created the end rock work, I created multiple holes on there. So you can't guess which one is the flow coming out of. <laughs> it's completely hidden. And to tell you how OCD I am, when I first did it, I went, oh, God, the volute is white. And I can see the volute. God, I got to <laughs> fix that. I can't take it. So I covered it up. And I'm, okay, that works. But the inside of the volute is still white, and I can now see that. So I took a black piece of vinyl tubing and stuffed it in there. It's a little <laughs> bit like putting your finger over the hose, and it completely you blacked it out. You truly are OCD. You cannot see it. <laughs> it really was. So it completely blacked it out, and now it's perfect. But the other thing that's important with it, it's truly accessible. All I have to do is reach down, pull it out, clean it, put it back in. And those chambers Brilliant. actually kind of look like uh, or kind of act like uh, catch basins. All the detritus in the tank kind of collects in the bottom of those. Mm. So during a water change, I'll just vacuum out the bottom. In fact, let me just, I'll show you on the intake. I'm just going to leave the camera yeah. here very yeah. quickly, right next to me here. Uh, and I'm going to grab what an intake screen is because I forgot to bring it out. This here is at the base of each of those chambers. This is the intake screen. Mm. These are spare ones, and they just sit in the bottom of the, of the uh, chamber. This is where water sucking in from behind the rockwork into here and then flowing out up top, shooting out. So I have this circular motion. This also provides the perfect spot to put your return from the sump. Mm. I don't need to have nozzles and look at nozzles coming from the <laughs> sump into the tank, nor have any of the back siphoning during a power outage. They just dump into each of the chambers on both sides, and I let the power so the, uh, the vector return pumps. nozzles are above the water line. Correct, okay. and it flows into both sides. And I don't put a whole lot of water through the sump, just enough to keep the heater and make the heater and chiller yeah. effective. So it's probably putting through maybe 2,000 gallons an hour. If so that. no possibility of any so back not, siphoning. Oh, God, yeah. no, it only fills up. My sump is 200 gallons of itself, and I'd only fill it up maybe two-thirds the way on a power outage. Yep. You know, it doesn't fill up. Yep. So that I designed that way back from the cold system. So this system inherited those dynamics, but it works perfectly. So there is nothing in the tank. There's no plumbing in the tank. There's very little plumbing anywhere here. Uh, other, it just drops down to the sump, comes right back up. Let me, um, I'm going to just kind of um, roll the, um, the video again here and, and fast forward to the, um, to the equipment, the stuff, um, the support equipment, you call it. And so we're taking a sure. look at the, uh, at the sump. And again, it's just super clean looking in there. I, you know, I see uh, you got a couple of uh, filter socks. You've got uh, some sort of reactor going on there. I see you got a filter roller. Um, so you're doing the... Uh, the um, filter roller. T t talk to us uh, in instead of me trying to like figure all this stuff out. Talk to us about the, the sure. Uh, 
well, first of all, the filter roller, it just wasn't always that way. Originally, it was uh, just going through some media floss, whatnot. It was Jake who turned me on to the filter rollers when I visited him, and I looked at his, and I went, oh, I can incorporate those into mine. So it's only about a year and a half I've been running that since uh, you know I visited him. So that was a relatively recent uh, addition. Is I, go, oh, I can just have everything go through the filter roller going through there. And then it goes through, it drops down from there, and then it goes through, uh, you know, another chamber. It has the skimmer, and, you know, it's a Bubble King 250 Deluxe, so it's a pretty powerful skimmer. Uh, my cold water tank uh, required that because of how much feeding was necessary. And this tank has a lot of feeding from the various things I'm trying to keep, including non-photosynthetic, you know, dendro. So I feed a lot, which means I have uh, nutrient problems. I don't have zeroing out on anything. I have the opposite problem phosphates running high and nitrates running high. So I run a sulfur reactor hmm. to keep them at bay. And I also dose uh, lanthium chloride, which is the filter sock. Everything goes really? through a five mi yeah, everything mm. goes through a five micron uh, sock before going back up into the tank. So, and that keeps my uh, phosphate at bay too. So I did a test before our show here. My phosphate uh, is currently at 0 0.08. My nitrate 7.2. Uh, alkalinity was 8.7, uh, calcium was 400, magnesium was 1400, pretty much it. So normal uh, stuff. TKH, did you, but with, did you without mention it, the uh, alkalinity? I, I might have missed it. Yeah, uh, 7.2, uh, uh, no, no, 8.7. Um, yeah. Wow, lanthium chloride, man, that's, uh, you got to know what you're doing with that stuff, right? I mean, you, yeah, you got to be do. careful with that. Well, that isn't the only thing <laughs> I that you have to be careful with. Oh, do tell. <laughs> All right. Well, if you want to kind of kind of uh, move on to pH, because to me, I don't care much about alkalinity. I've never cared much about alkalinity, as long as it doesn't get too high, you know, get up to like 13, 14, something like that. Then the corals start burning and everything else. I don't really care about alkalinity. Look at the ocean. What's the ocean? Six and a half, seven, you know, type thing. So like, pH is what matters to me and always has. For some reason, the world has started to become alkalinity fixated, and I'm not sure why. To me, they should be pH fixated. So uh, back to my air exchange, you know, that was a thing of pH. Yep. So the next uh, issue, because uh, that doesn't get me there, because I do run a calcium reactor, and I run the same calcium reactor that Jake was using as his favorite. You were, uh, we were talking about that, that at the studio, man. You were just, like, said, yeah. by oh, and far, it is, like, the most incredible calcium reactor you've ever run. I mean, they're not, they're not cheap. <laughs> no, 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 no. But to me, they are so well worth it, uh, the Deltec Twin Tech. And they're so worth it because there's only one parameter, one variable. How much effluent do you want? No drip rates, no none of that, uh, no bubble counts, none of that. All you do is hook it up, set it, forget it. And if you need some more uh, effluent, hit the button and dial it up or dial it down. That's all you have to do. So it, it's so slick. What about and, cleaning uh, it? Is that a pain in the ass or you do... Uh... No. Nope. Comes apart right easily. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, I just filled it up about a week ago. So it's getting a little low. So no big deal. Just run Reborn. So no big deal. Throw in some, uh, you know, uh, dolomite or something for magnesium. Help with a little bit with that. Uh, but really slick. But it performs by supersaturating the uh, chamber with CO2. So that's why you don't have a bubble count or anything else. So the effluent, you're dumping some CO2 into the yeah. tank, even even if you go through uh, you know, a, a secondary chamber, it still comes out. Now, when I visited Jake, he was having the exact same problem and we were both independently trying to tackle the problem. He first tackled it by sending it through a skimmer which 
promptly fouled up his pump and seized it up. So he goes, oh, that didn't work. <laughs> then he was putting, then he was putting it through, uh, you know, Kaido, a Kaidomorpha. Yep. And that's great too, but it can only suck up so much. And it's really all about dwell time. Even in a skimmer, it's only in there a few seconds. It just doesn't get enough time to off gas. Yeah. So what I did on my tank, you'll kind of show it in the side view video there, is since I have excess space in my sump, I created a side chamber there that my calcium reactor dumps into, and it just has a massive uh, uh, airstone under there, and it's like a washing machine there. And the only water that enters that chamber is from the calcium reactor, so it has a long, long dwell time before it spits out into the main tank. That gave me a 0.15 bump across oh, the wow. board just doing yeah. that. And that brought me to a range of 8.2 to 8.3, but I really want to be 8.3 to 8.4. Yeah. So for the last eight months now, I have been dosing sodium hydroxide. And that has brought me, now my pH never drops below 8.3. Mm. That is my lowest it'll ever go, and it's usually 8.33, 8.34. My highs are in the mid-8.4s. Yeah. And after I did that, the tank changed visually. And I'm not a big one for like, you know, look at it every day. How do you see changes? Like watching grass grow, but a week later you see it really grew. <laughs> but... <laughs> Uh, tanks are the same way. I've noticed a huge difference out of that. Now, sodium hydroxide is nasty stuff. You get so much as a drop of it on you, you're going to know it. And how you deliver it is really, really important. Everybody, you know that if you have anything that's highly alkaline, you know, pH 14, high, you know, pH of 14 or something, and you put it in our tank, it immediately creates a precipitation at the nozzle. You can see it. It immediately clouds in those areas. We try to put it in high flow areas and disperse it as quickly as possible. Um, so I knew I had to do that. So I was going, okay, maybe I'll put it in my, uh, return or my, uh, line coming down. Oh no, I better not put it in a pipe because I bet you that that precipitation eventually is going to be like, uh, an Indiana Jones and create a ball of goo. <laughs> I could just see that happening and I won't be able to see it or anything else. So I go, no, I'm not going to do that. So what I did is I have uh, just a circulation pump. It, it's about 2,000 gallons an hour. It basically supplies to my uh, reactors. I run ozone, runs this little bit. So I have a lot of excess capacity. I put it through a filter stock, dumping into a filter stock, and that's where I dump the sodium hydroxide. So it mixes in the sock. So any precipitate is going to be stuck in the sock in a 10 micron sock and not go anywhere. And there's no impact on the tank at all. And it isn't much. I run it from about 9 at night to about 7 in the morning. Every hour it dumps in, I think, 8 milliliters is currently where I have it. So every hour it gives a little job. And you can see it on my Apex thing. Uh, as it goes down, it gets down to 9 o'clock. Then it starts going <laughs> all the way across. and never gets below 8.3 until the lights come back on. Then it goes up. So, so far that's been working out so what's, good. And sodium hydroxide what, sheet. What's the, uh, the risk if that stuff gets into the system? What, what can happen? Mm, you know, I really can't see anything other than uh, because the, the, uh, it, I have mine delivered through a VersaPump. So the only thing is if the actual tubing, which is, you know, uh, reverse osmosis tubing, thick polypropylene tubing, it's not going to, I guess it could burn a hole in that and dump a little bit in. But I would catch it long before then because the Versa is only putting in a little bit at a time. And uh, I don't keep uh, the pumps or anything near the water. So create a mess on the floor. So you're right, it could be a point of failure. But if you design it, you know, you can, you can work around right. that. But I know it's kind of, 
kind of controversial and kind of thing, but it's worked out well for me uh, so far. I've been running, like I said, about eight months, but I never fall below 8.3. So now we're talking kind of ideal what the oceans would going to yeah. see. I'm not dropping way down there. So uh, it's really worked out well for me from that standpoint so far, and I see no different change. It's so easy. It's user-friendly. I don't have to do anything. Yeah. No, so. it sounds like it. So is the use of the lanthium chloride, did, did you try other methods in terms of trying to get the phosphates down before you went to the lanthium chloride, or did you kind of know with the design of the system in terms of the, uh, the circulation chambers that, that um, would potentially be something adding phosphate to the system that you would need to kind of break out the big gun, so to speak? Sure. Um, it's not so much for the design of the system being able to handle it or nutrient export. I export in so many different ways on this tank, little bits here and there. Um, it's the feeding that I do between, look, look how many large anemones I have, big boy anemones that are now, you know, foot and a half across, plus uh, dendros that I'm feeding kind of, you know, every couple, three nights. There's a lot of input, so that output is not being able to take care of. Uh, so lanthium chloride is the best. I'm sure I could use ROA or something like that, but um, it's hard to it's hard to meter, it's hard to regulate, it's yeah. expensive, it's not user friendly. This all I do as soon as I get it dialed into how much I need, and it dumps in a little squirt every hour, uh, and I dump it into my filter roller at the top of it. So first it goes through the filter roller, and then it goes through the skimmer, and then it goes through a five micron before it gets out to the next, uh, or the return pump can take it back into the tank. So I think I can get everything out. But it's been running that way probably for a year now, and I've had no issue other than I can maintain my uh, phosphate right around 0 0.08, 0.1. And I can tweak it if I want to by adjusting the lanthium chloride. It's hard to tweak ROA. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and um, so the key with the, uh, the, lan the lanthium is to basically make sure that absolutely no precipitate gets into the system, correct? Yes. Right. Or else Absolutely. that could be deadly to the fish. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, it, it can stick to their gills, and you know, tangs especially are susceptible yeah. to it. So, and I have a number of tangs in here, and they've never had any issue or problem. So, uh, so all right. There's bacteria. That's another question I had for you. Let's talk about bacteria. Sure. Do you um, do you do any bacteria dosing to the tank? If so, why? And um, have you played around with that stuff at all? I have not. Uh, the only areas I've kind of thought about, and I think I tried it once or twice, is when uh, uh, it's being paired with uh, calcium carbonate. It's kind of a... Uh, coral snow type of thing? Yeah, coral snow in the tank, and try that for clarity, and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, I didn't see much of a difference. But on the other hand, I run UV and ozone, so how much clearer was it going to get, you know, type thing. But I haven't done any uh, bacteria dosing. Uh, mostly, I think my bacteria has come from, uh, one, I started the tank with a portion of uh, true live rock, uh, Florida live rock. I used actually three kinds of rock when I started this tank. Puget Sound out of my old tank. A little bit of dry rock that I used uh, kind of the flat uh, plate uh, rocks to create my side panels over here. And then some Florida live rock. So I think most of mine came from there, started from there. And of course, uh, live sand, which I've used, uh, the Florida live sand. I think that's where it's coming from. But I haven't been into the bacteria dosing things. I, I really haven't seen a need for it. Gotcha. So. You know, I want, I want to... Um talk about one thing that um, is kind of jumping back again in terms of the uh, the powerheads and the no visible powerheads mm -hmm. and, and lines. Mm -hmm. Tell us the, uh, you told me this funny story when, when we were talking at, uh, at the studio, mm -hmm. when you came into Jake's, um, into Jake's place there and, and, and uh, you looked at his tank and 
tell tell the story in terms of what you said to Jake and how he reacted. Well, first I got lots of Jake stories. So <laughs> we there, we're going around to it, and sometimes I get no just get great pleasure in uh, kind of poking the bear, you know, a little bit because <laughs> he knows he knows my buttons to push, and I yeah. know his. So uh, I know that when I was coming there, he knows how anal I am on both like wire control and uh, power heads and everything else, and also uh, Coraline algae and detritus and everything else. So I walked into the studio right away, and I could already tell that he's been spending the last week doing nothing but cleaning. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, anyway, uh, so he, um, walked into the studio and, uh, immediately went over to his peninsula tank and his, uh, water box tank. And he's like showing it off everything. You know, I really, he's saying, I really like to clean the tanks. I really got it ready for you. You're not going to find anything wrong. And I went, well, what about that power head? And what about this little <laughs> patch of core line? And, Okay, let's go over and look at that tank now. <laughs> I can see that you didn't clean it. And why isn't that skimmer cleaned out and is overflowing? <laughs> you you so, got him. Gives me great pleasure. Yeah. yeah, so we have a lot of things to that. But to, to kind of come back full uh, circle back on the aquascaping, I went, I don't know if you remember when you were there, when you walk in the studio on the right-hand side, he had a somewhat cubish tank, but it was a tank that he was keeping uh, trachophilias, galenias, yes. yeah. uh, all that kind of stuff, kind of the lower light, yeah. kind of uh, you know some blastos and whatnot. And that was a tank that, back to where we originally started, that he was saying, you know, I'm doing um, uh, vertical aquascaping. So I was really curious. That was the first thing I wanted to see. Where's this vertical aquascaping? How's it comparing to mine? And I went in there, and what he had done is he had taken some plate rock, and he glued it together and he put corals on it and he tipped it up and i looked at it and he's like what do you think i go kind of looks like a display out of dunkin donuts that's what it really looks like to me it's like what the hell all you had to do is take a big rock cut it off plant it in the middle now you have this perfect surface to put everything around it it'll look natural fish can swim around it no dead spots water flow around it it's like yeah not so much <laughs> i don't like it <laughs> but he got me back. He got me back. Uh, literally about ten minutes later, he was uh, talking about, uh, you know, hey, there's this uh, really interesting uh, coral ID book out. You really ought to consider getting it. It's really easy to use. Now, first off, I have always used Jake as my coral ID. Yeah. If I see something in the store, snap a picture, text it off, come back, I get a full Wikipedia page out. Yeah. <laughs> Details yeah. everything. So I don't need it. But anyway, he goes, it's a really easy. Uh, uh, coral ID, and I go, okay, so what you're saying is you think I need a coral ID for dummies book. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> you, you know, while you're at it, Jake, just hand me a coupon for Weight Watchers, too, you know? Because, <laughs> no, no, I'm not thinking that. And I go, yeah, I know you are, just because I told you you'd look like Dunkin' Donuts. So, <laughs> so we kind of always go back and forth a little bit on that. But uh, everyone thinks uh, Jake is, was you know pretty anal, and he was. There's no doubt about it. But I'm worse. Yeah, no, you can oh. definitely tell that going into the studio that um things were really well put together but i'm sure if we uh toured your uh your place there steve then that would be to a whole nother uh, level it looks like um and and speaking of cleanliness and whatnot the uh i just can't help but noticing the uh, the sand bed behind you in that tank and also the sand bed in the 850 talk to us about what you do with the uh with sand beds 
Okay, first off, I cannot stomach or tolerate bare-bottom tanks. I mean, they're fine. They, to me, they become coral displays. It's there to display the coral. That's what Jake's tank was. Jake hated sand, not so much because it looked bad, but it, what it did for the corals. And there's absolutely no disagreement with that. Sand is problematic. You, it's not good for anything other than our eye. So it creates all kinds of problems. You just can't set it and forget it. It's going to create you drama and all kinds of problems. If you go diving and in the sandy areas, okay, it's kind of dead barren's area for a yeah. reason. Sand, not good for your tank, but it's good for our eye. It basically provides relief from the eye, and I'm all about the presentation and the display of the tank, not the individual corals. So from Jake's standpoint, he liked the individual singers. I prefer the chorus. So everybody together, what they're doing. So for sand, I've got to have sand in there in some manner. It provides light, get a little more bounce uh, visually, the whole thing. So, uh, But it comes with drama and everything else. There's no doubt about it. So I have to have a little bit of sand in there. So, But I also was going to take the opportunity to kind of poke Jake a little bit too. After his trip to, his ill-fated trip to Bali, you know, he and Windsor were going to come out and visit me. They were planning a trip to come out to Oregon. We were going to go out to the Oregon coast. And uh, he was actually going to do a, a thing on this tank here and all doing kind of things there. But I was already prepping uh, for his visit and they're staying with me. I had uh, changed my guest Wi-Fi password to sand is required <laughs> with three exclamation points. It's <laughs> <That's> awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I let him type that in every day. <laughs> so I never, never try to. Miss that an is very clever, man. That is very clever. So, but uh, yeah, there's no doubt, sand. We're in full agreement that sand is not really healthy. Doesn't provide any benefit other than visually. And since I'm all about the visual product, I'll do what I need to do to compensate for that. Whereas Jake is, yeah, just pull the sand. So, how do you maintain such a clean sand bed? What's the? Uh, do you let? Uh, do you have the cleanup uh, crew? I or? stir it. Okay. I st uh, no, the best cleanup crew is me. The best controller, me. So I only have a few snails in here. There's really not much. But I'm in there pretty much every day, and I'm always tweaking. There's not much sand here. It's really thin. You know, I pile it up a little bit for some of my wrasses. And uh, uh, I'll just stir it around for a little bit when I'm kind of dicking around in there. Are you siphoning there, it or you're so just stirring it? Just stirring mm -hmm. it. And my dendros like it, so when I start stirring it, they come out. Uh, it'll just hit the overflow. And about once a week or so, when I'm doing a little bit more in-depth cleaning, I'll throw on a diatomaceous uh, filter, dump it in the tank while I'm cleaning, and that'll help out, too. I'll do a little bit of that. Um, but uh, mostly it just kind of goes over the overflow and seems to work out pretty good. But, yeah, I, I, I maintain it. If I were to take a, a turkey baster now and stand it, it would hardly hardly uh, uh, fog the tank. Wow. So um, the, uh, the the large amount of flow that you have in that tank, you're not um, constantly, you know, having the sand bed get moved around? No. Right now you can see uh, there's quite a bit of flow by how much is moving in here. Occasionally at the very end I might get a little bit, but this is a pretty coarse, fan, uh, pretty coarse sand, so it's a little bit heavier. Uh, it's not like an Ulith or uh, even like a Fiji pink or anything. The uh, Florida live sand actually can be pretty chunky. So uh, I think it does the job. It's a little darker and grayer than I've used in the past. On my old systems, I always use the Fiji pink. But uh, this system here, I'm using the Florida Live Sand, and I kind of learned to like it. I kind of like the diversity of it. Because one thing, 
with all its diversity, uh, I don't feel inclined to pick out little things like, oh, there's a dot. I need to pick it out. <laughs> <laughs> now it's dots everywhere. That's better. Okay. I, don't I, I kept the messiest sand beds. You know, I mean, you know, I would like bump into a coral or something like that. So I'd have like coral fragments. I'd have dead snails and all that stuff. I mean, what a driven you bananas like looking at my sand beds oh. so um i pulled all my sand beds you know so i i had been running sand beds for years and years and years but now i have all uh bare bottom so yeah, yeah. you wouldn't be a fan of that but um I, you know well, it's um I, I find it easier in terms of being able to get the detritus out and all that stuff and, and oh absolutely know, it, it is it's, easier, um, it's so. definitely more efficient in, in that regard but um no kudos doubt to you man in terms of being able to have such a brilliant looking uh sand bed and, you know, I've, I've seen, um, you know, some folks that um, are, are read about people siphoning sand beds and, 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 you know, a section at a, you know, every other day or, or whatnot. But obviously, I think if you have the good flow on that system, if you're shifting it around or sifting it around and getting that uh, detritus into the uh, water column, then that does the, uh, the trick. Do you also, um, do you ever take a power head to the, uh, to the rock structure and blow detritus off the rock work? I absolutely, I do. Take a little maxi jet. Uh, go around there and blow it around there. I'll do that yeah, a couple times a week. I usually do water changes about once every month-ish, four to six weeks, and that's a good time to really kind of uh, uh, really kind of spray off all those rocks with a power head. And usually, always when I do that at the time, I'll run a, an auxiliary filter on there just while I'm cleaning to kind of catch all that. Just using those little marine land canister filters into the tank. Yes. Because you can fill those with diato diatomaceous earth. Right. So, which I do, and works out pretty good. It pulls out quite a bit. Those little, those little, uh, those little guys pull out quite a bit. Yeah, so. I, I actually uh, have one myself, and and I do the same exact thing. You know, I'll um, upload the um, the rocks with a little MaxiJet power head. Even the uh, the bottom, there's some detritus that's hanging around the bottom. If I don't siphon that stuff out, I put one of those uh, Marine Land uh, little filters in the tank and and let yeah, it run for, they were great. Let it run for a few hours, and there's a lot of stuff that comes out of that. Gets caught. Yeah, yeah. It really, yeah, it really works well. So I, I do that. So, um, so it's multiple things, but I'm pretty much in there every day, uh, doing something. You know, tweaking here, tweaking there, because it's a hobby. I mean, if you don't like being in there, this, you know, maybe not. Hobby's this, not for you. This is not a lazy man's <laughs> hobby, right? This is something no. that you really need to be very active and engaged, and you need to be looking at the tank all the time. It's. Um, it's not sure. something where you can kind of just sit back and relax and, and let uh, things, uh, you know, do their thing. It's a, uh, it's a living, breathing thing, these reef tanks that we have. And it changes over time. So to me, it's living art. And that artwork, uh, you know, instead of uh, our medium being paint, it's coral and rock. Yeah. And it changes all the time. So we always have to do something. Unfortunately, it kind of success breeds that you have to tear it down you know so here you get a huge column like a little milka style over here which started off as a little itty bitty guy is now i don't know 16 17 inches across it's like oh boy someday i'm gonna have to do something and i'd rue, rue the day when i have to do that i like you now but it's gonna become a problem uh, i know i've got a milka style on my peninsula tank that's just gotten so huge i've got an orange cap on the one on the other side of the tank that is just um you know it's it's um it's uh, cupping along up the uh, the overflow yeah. and, and all that stuff, and got to start breaking some pieces off of that sucker, or else it'll be a tank full of orange cap, you know? Oh, yeah. You know? Jake always said, if you leave your tank alone, you're just going to be stuck with one coral in the tank. <laughs> very, very well said. <laughs> There's, um, There's going to be one winner. Yeah. 
Speaking of um, winners and losers, how do you manage with the anemones, the carpet and the ritter eye? You know, those are uh, ah. those are tough corals to keep in a mixed reef, correct? Uh, tough anemones to keep in a mixed reef, yeah. So the key is understanding their requirements, and uh, especially uh, magnificas, the ritter eyes, and uh, the gigs. They're known for walkabouts and moving and everything. Well, they're moving because they're not happy. So from the very beginning, I provided them the what I consider to be their ideal spot. Like if you look at my Magnifica over here, uh, you, know, you can see from the, uh -huh. the picture how bright it is over yeah. him. There is right over him a radium uh, XR30 directly over him, really white light, and inches from him, it's about 900 uh, micromoles on the par meter right at his top tentacles there. And he's in a high flow area on top of a peninsula. Anywhere he goes, it, or on, on top of a, an outcropping. Anywhere he goes is going down, so he's not going to want to do it. Uh, I put him there basically almost three years ago. He was one of the first things I put in the tank. He hasn't moved since. So, and the same with uh, the gig. I always, uh, they want to be high up. They want to be in flow. And I guess in the wild, a lot of times they're on vertical surfaces. So I go, ooh, I got some vertical surfaces. And I planted him. He's been there ever since, although he's also starting to get enormous. <laughs> so, um, But he stays right there at the end of that. It's a perfect spot for him. Uh, so if you provide them with the what they want to be in, they're not going to move on you. Now, the Hedonis at the bottom, sometimes they can move. And they'll shift left or right or a little bit, especially if they get near a coral. Uh, my blue one here, is my torch is kind of getting too big over there. I might have to kind of uh, frag him back a little bit. But when he starts getting touching the blue carpet, the blue carpet loses, mm. and he'll 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 start shifting over to the left or right. So if I want him to stay where he is, I just have to make sure nobody bothers him. Is so. is the uh, is the best thing to put an enemies in at the beginning? You know, it's controversial either way. A lot of people want to really uh, mature tanks. I'm sure there's some benefit to that. Um, I don't really don't think there's any rhyme or reason going in there. I think really what it is is collecting um, healthy stocks to begin with. Now, a big change that's happened since I had an enemies in the 2000s, of course, is you know the antibiotics, the cepros and the oxalic acids, oxalic acids and whatnot, especially the cepro for an enemies, uh, especially the, uh, the mags and the gigs. Um, I picked up that mag on the cheap because it was completely bleached white. Yeah. It was, you know, already on its way out and I took it home. I seaproed it for a couple of weeks and I've had it ever since. Mm. So it wouldn't have lasted a few more days in the store when I had it there. So that is something that we did not, wasn't available to us back in the day. And we'd get gigs, you get like four or five, six of them and hopefully one survives. So that's no longer the case. We have pretty good success rate with yeah, it yeah. now. I think it's I think it's more along the lines of not so much the tank, but the specimen that you're yeah. getting. How many pairs of clownfish do you have in that tank? Uh, I have a threesome over here going on in this one here, <laughs> and then just a one guy over here. Those guys over there uh, lay eggs pretty consistently under there. Threesome, uh, huh? This, uh, yeah, wow. there's a threesome. It started off as four that I thought would Two yeah. would go one and two would go the other, but nope, <laughs> threesome there and a lone dude over there. So interesting. So, uh, yeah, started. Yeah, you never know how it works out, but they've been there and um, yeah, they're pretty protective of that enemy. If I get too close, I start getting bit. Oh, so no yeah. doubt. There you go. You got to watch out. Um, all right, a question from one of the viewers, Reef Ghost, um, Oregon Reef. How do you feel about the local slash state scene here in Oregon? Can't seem to find anything but Facebook groups, and they're nowhere near the Cali scene. What, what's going on there in terms of local uh, reef keeping scene there? 
Oh, I am so the wrong person to ask. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just say if I were to have an avatar, it would be a hermit crab. So. <laughs> I'm just not that big on the boards or, you know, I participate occasionally in our local fish club, uh, Pacific uh, Marine Aquarium Society. It's a pretty good club and they have, you know, monthly meetings and they do some interesting things going to the Oregon Coast, Oregon Coast Aquarium, uh, Hatfield Center, some local flag swaps. But uh, I'm not on Facebook. I'm not on Instagram. But you got a website. I can't even get the. Ha I do have a website, <laughs> but I didn't even create it. I have a buddy of mine who do, who said you have to have a website, and I said, okay, go ahead. I'll create the I'll create the data, and you can put it together. And it's been there ever since, and it auto renews. And I just yeah, I was going to say, Steve. Uh, I was going <laughs> to say, Steve. 1990 is calling, and. Uh... <laughs> Your website. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Whatever so, that. Uh... But every every March it comes around and auto renews before I catch it. Oh, I missed it again. <laughs> so one of these days. But, you know, it still gets traffic. So I go, well, I guess maybe somebody's getting out of it. But, yeah, it's not going to stay up there forever. Eventually I'm going to take it down because it's so uh, antiquated. But there's still useful information there, you know, if you can get past the uh, – kind of the old Star Trek button kind of look thing on there, <laughs> you know, but, uh, yeah, so it certainly is dated, but, uh, Hey, everything uh, old is new again. Maybe there it'll come you around go. retro website. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Look at that. Wow. You really captured 2000. <laughs> so, um, one, um, one topic that you and I were talking about earlier this week when we were kind of testing out the, um, the connection with the live stream here is, is UV. Mm -hmm. Talk to us about um, yeah. your little experiment. You used, uh, you were using UV, but then you stopped using UV. What, um, what did you learn with that experiment? Uh, really interesting, and I didn't expect these results at all. It kind of took me back. But I have always used UV. Even all my past systems, I always used a, just a boatload of UV. This system's no different. It was using uh, basically 120 watts of UV on this system. It's basically two of those 57-watt uh, aqua UVs in series. So one runs into the next before it uh, pees out. So uh, at a fairly slow rate, so it's really nuking that water that goes through it. So um, the latest is, you know, the aquabiomics testing. And I've done now three of them. Uh, the first ones we're dealing with oxalinic acid uh, experiment. But the last one, um, when I was done with that, I went, you know, it came back on my reports on the aquabiomics that I had a very minimal amount of what they consider maybe a good bacteria, or the pelagic bacteria, that pink yep. layer. And I had next to nothing because I run UV. So tank is styling, moving along great, everything. I'm going, you know, I'm going to run an experiment. This is just this last, I don't know, May-ish. I go, I'm going to turn off my UV for, you know, six to eight weeks and see what happens if that, and then run another aquabiomics uh, report and see what the changes are. So uh, I did that, and I recently got back the results. It was only like a week or so ago, and I was kind of shocked one, that, uh, quote, good bacteria layer was a little bit bigger. It's probably double or triple from where it was originally, and it, if I keep going on. However, suddenly, I now have three flavors of cyanobacteria in the tank that I've never had before. It always came back zero. Uh, fifth pathogens, which, in fact, I even have it written down here, uh, originally on a fish pathogen, was 0 0.003. Next... On the recent one, post-UV, 0.4. Wow, that's a big jump. <clears throat> Huge yeah. jump. 
And same with the coral, the Shamia coral pathogen that was negligible, 0.001. It's now like, okay, 0.02. It just went up too. And I went, what the hell? <laughs> and the other thing that uh, was a kicker for me was during this entire time, and it was just flummoxing me, is my dendrophilias, fathead dendros, weren't coming out at all. They're usually always out at night, and I can coax them out during the day. And all while creating that video, I did my damnedest to try to get them to come out. I put everything I could smelly in that tank, and I couldn't get them out because I wanted to film them. It's like, what in the hell's going on with these guys? And all of them, and I have a little batch here and a little batch there. Within 48 hours of pulling the UV back online, they're fully out. And you can even see them now that I don't have any food in the water. They're already starting to come out on that side there for the nighttime, in the daytime. So now it's, op you know, it's uh, observational, and I can't right. put anything, but it's enough to me. And the other thing is my uh, Achilles tang here suddenly during this time started occasionally flashing. Yeah. And I've already seen him flash once or twice. It's nothing big, and he doesn't have any uh, other thing on there, and he seems fine, but occasionally started to flash. That never happened before. So, uh, yes, that bacterial layer might be beneficial, but I think I'm getting more beneficial from other parameters that are, no, that are now you know, allowed to run roam-free in the tank. So I'm going to run it this way with the UV back on for another six to eight weeks or so, and then run another report and see if it's changed anything. Yeah. Interesting. See if I've gone back to baseline because all my other reports were zeroed out. No cyano, minimal uh, fish pathogens, you know, hardly registering, minimal coral pathogens, hardly registering. Suddenly, oh, here they all are. But of yeah. course, cyano does not dare show its presence on your sand bed, right? Because it's your, you know, pristine tank, so they wouldn't even show themselves. But it came up on the report, yeah. right? So, <laughs> exactly. I didn't see anything. But there is no unauthorized algae growth or cyano in the tank. Yeah, so. how do you manage that? How do you manage, like, absolutely no uh, nuisance algae in that tank? I'm, I'm assuming you don't have any nuisance algae. I mean, have you? No. Okay. Uh, occasionally, a little spot, you get a little biopsis or something like little heritage algae spots or something, or a spot that maybe a tang can't get to up near the top of the rocks or something. And I'll just use a little, uh, you know, brush and brush those out occasionally that nobody can get to to take care of. But uh, when I design the system in the aquascaping, I make sure everything's accessible. Otherwise, it becomes a chore. If things aren't accessible, it becomes a chore, and you don't do it. So I have to have a clean background. I mean, you, you have to look at any coral vendor on this planet is not put, showing off their corals with a coralline background. It's always going to be a sh right, clean background. because yeah. It, it, yeah, it offsets the corals. Yeah. It shows them off in a way that is not capable with a coralline background. And to me... Uh, it doesn't look natural. It's flat, you know. Maybe if it was a rocky surface coralline, hey, I'm all for it. But when it's flat like that, to me, it's artificial and fake. And not that a black background is all that great and wonderful, but it's the closest thing we have to, to offset the It just corals. makes them pop. Yeah, makes them pop. Yeah. Uh, and there's a reason why uh, photography is done that way, against that black background. That's the reason. So I've got to have it. So I make sure my aquascaping is pulled off the back where I can just take a mop just bloop, 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 off the back. Just takes a few seconds. And I do that every couple days. So really, it's not that hard. But, uh, you know, to me, it makes all the difference in the world when you look at the tank from a distance. So, and it was an issue with my old tank, the 850. Uh, I had a, it was a clear back on my 850. But I put a black panel that you see in the pictures. It was a little tiny 1 8 inch panel that I could pull off and back for looking yep. at maintenance and everything else. And it also created that infinite depth. 
If I were to do that today, though, I would do it completely different. Something I couldn't do back then. These days, what I do for that area is I'd put a big screen TV in the back and run a continuous loop of a deep ocean scene. Oh, wow. And then when the TV's, when the TV's off, it would be blacked out. And the TV's on, now that's now have an being, ocean scene going in the back. That's being innovative, man. That's innovative thinking right there. Yeah. If I were to do it these days, I always wanted to do that, but it wasn't practical back in the <laughs> 2000s. Now you can get these big 70-inch screen TVs and that are all you know relatively easy, and I'd put it on a continual loop. So that's what I'd do today. And if anyone does that, I want royalties. <laughs> you get credit for that one. Uh, John writes, comment, Steve, do you look at your tank every day and think, wow, because I do, and it's nothing like yours? <laughs> <laughs> well, there's no doubt I look at it every day and several times a day. You're always looking at it and you always have those things in the middle of the night Ooh, you know what's going on oh i got to go down and check out it <laughs> type thing no doubt about it i do keep a webcam on oh, you it. do uh yeah so i have a webcam up there that uh, shows it so at least when i'm kind of traveling this or not around private, or during the day private webcam okay yeah exactly. you gotta make that public man so just so i can uh yeah no uh, <laughs> i'm not always wearing pants okay <laughs> well you don't need that um so during the day, I can kind of check on it and kind of like, oh, let's just turn on the camera and see what people, what are, the, what are they doing in there? Do you have so, a, uh, a webcam on your sump as well? Well, this one here, I can uh, scroll the camera on it. So it's a movable camera. So I can scroll it around. In fact, I can scroll it around the whole garage if I wanted to. So, and it's also a zoom one. So I can scroll down and zoom in on the sump. So. I, you know, I've got, um, I think, let's see, one, two, three, four, five webcams. So I've got one on each display tank, the two display tanks, and I've got another that's eyeballing the three frag tanks in the frag tank room, and then I've got one each for my uh, sumps. <laughs> so it's not very efficient, but I've got eyes on everything, you know, when I'm away, which yeah. is good, you know. Peace of mind. It is. Not worrying it about is. it. Um, what do you have in terms of? Um, I know redundancy is a big thing for you, right? What, what do you have in terms of that type of, um, you know, contingencies, right? In terms of any type of equipment failure, what do you have set up? Well, this one is run pretty simply. There's really not even if a component were to fail. The only area that I'm really susceptible to that is the return pump because it's a single return pump. Um, I use a pretty good return pump that I'm running through there, and I keep a backup also in the sump that runs eh, 15 minutes a day to just kind of stir the sump and also keep it kind of active. And it's all plumbed and ready to go if it ever comes. I can just switch the two out immediately and get it back on. But um, the thing probably which is the most... Uh, for redundancy is for power outages here. Now, uh, power outages here is pretty rare, and they're usually pretty short-lived. Uh, but, you know, we do have windstorms, and mm -hmm. something can happen. And so I keep a generator just over there on the other side of the garage. It can pull 30 amps. It can support mm. 30 amps, so it can support this entire system. But when I wired this system, even for my cold water system, I broke it down into two circuits, two 20-amp circuits. One 20-amp circuit has all the critical things on it. The other 20-amp circuit has all the fluff on it. So, and they're color-coded plugs. All I have to do is fire up the generator, run my extension cord over, unplug, plug in, the whole system comes live. And I've had to do that a few times this last winter, usually only for a few hours, but if it had to been for a day or two, I would have been fine. What, uh, so everything went live. What, uh, what about if you're traveling? Uh, I don't travel that much, but I have a couple friends around who are in the hobby who can certainly come over and... And, of course, I have a webcam to make sure there's no wet fingers leaving the, <laughs> leaving the garage. <laughs> but uh, I can have them come over and do uh, some feedings and whatnot. So I don't do a whole lot of traveling as much as I have in the past. So um, 
certainly, uh, but I have I have some support that I can do if that's, I had to. That's that's critical. Um, it really is. All right, a couple of things. Um, one, I see a question here about your fish, but I wanted to ask you a um, a question in terms of feeding coral feeding. Anything that you do special for the corals, amino acids, any specific coral foods feeds? Uh, I really like the Captivate line. And I use actually quite a bit of their stuff. I like their coral foods with the different particle sizes, and I use pretty much all of those in a mixture. And I feed corals usually in the evening when everybody's coming out, uh, maybe you know eight, nine o'clock at night, kind of before I'm going to bed, I'll throw into the tank, and I'm just throwing in broadcast feeding them. And occasionally, uh, target feed them with uh, you know turkey basters and whatnot. And for the dendros, I'm usually doing that as well as with solids, mysis, uh, LRS, things like that, uh, to target feed them because they can actually they're like little anemones they'll suck in a whole bunch so i do feed that i do feed the corals from that i've never found much results with amino acids and jake and i used to talk about this i said well what's the deal with the amino acids why are people he goes well i can tell a tank immediately if it's using amino acids well how he goes well the coral ends are always puffier and everything i was like who can see that? I can't see. I can't even read my phone. How am I going to see that? Um, so I go, yeah, this is not going to be my thing. So I haven't found a need to go to amino acids. And that's a, the other thing that I do add in there is uh, minor and trace elements. Now, obviously, those are huge rabbit holes these days. You know, moonshiners and everything else. And I can't go down those rabbit holes. That's too much for me. But I really like, and Jake turned me on to it, uh, Captivates M&T. And I've been using that. And I just got back a uh, ICP test. And everything came back on there detectable with the exception of iron, which I guess immediately goes poof yeah. in your tank anyway. But I had little traces of, you know, vanadium and cobalt and fluorine and everything else. And went, okay, well, it seems to be working just by my putting in a few eyedroppers of uh, the M&T stuff. So I go, you know, I really don't need to go down those rabbit holes and try to fine tune all of those. I'm happy with the way it looks. I'm not so sure I'm getting any benefit, and I'm increasing a massive amount of testing and workload. I'm just going to stick to the M&T. It's affordable. It's concentrated. It's easy. So you're talking about the, um, so far. the Captivate Isolate M&T, which has multiple trace elements it. in it. So you're not doing the individual yep. trace element dosing. So that absolutely. Yep. Yep. And uh, what specifically? What foods are you using from uh, Captivate? Do you know off the top of your head? Fluids. That's what uh, fluid uh, I'm food. putting in. Coral food. Oh, yeah, the yeah, foods. Yeah. Um, I don't know off the top of my head, but they have, it's probably different grinds is what I'm guessing. It's probably the same stuff in different grinds. And I basically have them all and we'll put in difference at different times. You know, I'm sure the uh, Ghani's like a little finer particulate matter because, you know, like Ghani power and stuff is pretty fine. Uh, which actually I use that a little bit, Reefroids, a little bit of that. All these things which are jacking my phosphate through the roof. <laughs> Hence the lanthium chloride. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, hey, Hey, Andrew Sandler's in the house. What's happening there, Andrew? Good to have you uh, tuning in, right, versus being opposed to speaking on the show. Um, so, fish. There was a question from uh, who was asking the question, John Wright. Can we talk about Steve's fish? Well, a big part of the tank for me is not the corals. So that's a big difference between my tank and Jake's tanks. Uh, I have fish and usually big fish. I think they're a big part of the display, so they're really important to me. Uh, Jake mostly used fish for utilit utilitarian purposes, especially the tangs and all. And he had some fa pretty fantastic ones, and especially his yellow tangs were amazing. Um, so, but 
there's some fish that I have always been intrigued with. One, back to when I first stuck my head in the water when I was 10 years old, Moorish idols. It's mm. one of my favorite fish, but they're not user, can be user friendly. It's very spotty. So this one here I've had almost from the beginning. So I'd say he's two, two and a half years old now. Eats everything, flake, nori, scallop out of my hand, uh, anything. And so he's been doing things, and I just haven't seen him really touch any coral. Sometimes he'll pick at slime if something's sliming. But so far he's been pretty good, but I'm under no illusion that that is going to stay forever. <laughs> Someday, I figure my emperor, my regal, and my uh, Moorish idols, you know, enjoy them while I can, because someday I may not be able copper to. Band. They're gonna have copper band. Copper band. Copper band. Copper band was a pain in the butt. I my, especially my wife, she loves copper bands. And I love copper bands, too. So hard to be. It took me seven months of feeding nothing but live black worms before he finally got on to uh, uh, frozen. Nice. Finally. Seven months of live black worms. So wow. I was like, oh. yeah. But he finally started, okay, I'll eat this other stuff. Now he eats everything. He'll eat scallop out of my hand, everything. Awesome. He won't touch flake food. Everybody in here will eat flake food. Uh, with the exception of the copper band. So I feed flake food as well. So, And a little bit of uh, pellets occasionally. And too. I see... Especially if I'm traveling. I see you've got a powder blue uh, tang in there. I had a gorgeous yep. powder blue that I had to give up because it turned into an asshole, which is their reputation. Exactly. Well, this guy is actually the last fish to go in here is the powder blue. And I got him, I don't know, six, seven months ago. And he was about the size of maybe one of my damsels. I got him because I never saw a powder blue that small at the nice. store. And I went, okay, all my other tangs are huge. There's no way he's going <laughs> to, they're just going to slap, slap him, fin slap him silly. So I said, I'm pretty safe putting him in. And he's gone in. He's gotten bigger, obviously. Yeah. And, uh, but he's way behind the pecking order, behind the Achilles who rules the roost. And then, of course, next in line is the purple tang. So uh, I think... Obviously, uh, addition order. Yeah, matters. yeah, 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 for sure. Uh, Jason Natal is asking, what about your Achilles? What foods do you feed him specifically? He'll eat anything. He eats scallop out of my hand. Uh, he loves nori. They get nori every morning. Um, he eats flake food. He eats pellets. He eats everything. And always has from the very beginning, from the time I got him. He was, uh, he's been in here for a couple years now um, and does really well. So that's why I was kind of concerned with that report. And I started seeing him starting to flash a little bit. It's like, I don't want to yeah, lose you. No. So I was like, I'm putting the UV back on. <laughs> um, unorthodox Reef, my Moorish randomly decided to shred SPS at like the two-year mark like a dog on a bone. <laughs> See, that can happen. I'm under no illusion that it's forever, but enjoy uh, it while you can. Uh, Jason Natal also says, Steve, your tank is amazing. was my inspiration for going large once my family and I settled into our new home. Finally, I got a piece of the Oregon Tortiosa from Keith from my centerpiece acro. That is a centerpiece acro. I've, I have one in every one of my Absolutely. tanks. Just, uh, yeah. I do think uh, Jake's Hoaxamai rivals it. Really? Yeah, it's uh, right there, uh, below there. It was just a little nubbin when I got it. Now it's pretty good size. But it has a similar coloration, obviously a different growth pattern. I think once the growth pattern uh, sets in, I think it may surpass the Oregon Tour because they're wow. very similar in coloration. That's... But I much prefer the Hoaxamai uh, growth pattern as opposed to the Oregon Tour. That's, so. a, uh, that's a pretty significant statement, man. I mean, that's... that's yeah, wow. absolutely. I, I never thought so either. Uh, a lot of people get on the Immortal Tort. By the way, it truly is an Immortal Tort. Three days after I got it, it fell into my blue Ooh, carpet and enemy. And it survived. 
and I pulled it out. And wow. it's like, oh, it truly is immortal. Wow. <laughs> I couldn't Jeez. believe it. <laughs> Those carpets, man, exactly. are like, forget about it. Oh, they yeah, hurt, exactly. They hurt like human beings. I mean, you know, it's like you get stung bad. I pulled it out and I immediately texted Kate, truly is immortal. <laughs> I just pulled it out of my blue carpet. <laughs> Yikes. Um, Andrew Sandler, aminos are going out of style. Huh. Interesting. Um, what was the, uh, the other uh, thing I wanted to ask you? Um, I don't know, dude. Did we miss anything? I mean, we've covered a lot of ground here, uh, Steve. Hmm, I guess not. I think pretty much we covered everything that you want to cover, but there's lots of other things you can always go into, but it's kind of the gist of it going on. Uh, it is unique, I think, this tank, and kind of I'm a little bit old school in what I try to achieve. I'm much more visual. These days, there's so many more different ways to participate in this hobby than there was in our day. How many times now you see tanks that are literally just frag tanks? Yeah and grow out tanks, which is fine. It's a different way of participating in the hobby. You have those that are uh, coral-centric, fish-centric, others that are, you know, sail-centric. And these days, it seems like there's a, another subset of, um, you know, equipment-centric. So I have this equipment, this equipment, this is it. I don't know how many times you look at a 50-page online build thread, 50 pages later, and there's still not water in the tank. <laughs> so, so it's all about the lights and equipment. And... I don't know when it became popular to, you know, look at the light or have your lights visible. I, I don't understand that. There's no way I can do that. I just have a shroud around mine. And the other thing that I find fascinating, uh, everybody uses one light. I use radions. I use mitras. I use XYZ, you know, whatever it is. It's like, oh, well, I don't. I use Orfex. I use uh, Radions, and I use Kessels because they all do things differently, and they all provide a different mm. look. So I use all three for where I want them to be. My Radions are over my anemones. My Kessels are providing a little shimmer. My Orfex are providing that T5 look on the front. So against some of my bluer coral. So I use a multiple multiple of lights to create the look that I'm trying to achieve from what we had back in the day. Everybody today, you, it looks the same. Red Sea, Red Sea, Red Sea, you know, Radeon, Radeon, Radeon. It's just like, mm, I, mean, I never really liked looking at them. It's another to me eyesore, but uh, to each his own. But that's something that's like, why don't people use different lights? They all do different things differently. So no, that's, it, that's oh, a well. great point. That's a great point. Um, right. And, and, you know, and that's what we did years ago, right? In terms of running, uh, you know, halides slash T5 combos. Some people are running LEDs and halides and T5s yeah. and, and uh, multiple bulb coloration, yep, mixing it up a little bit. Yep. Nothing wrong with that. Yeah. Um, question about Miracle Mud. Um, who's asking that question? Uh, John Wright, Steve, have you used Miracle Mud? Because some of my corals seem to love it. Is that anything you've tried in the past? I have no doubt that may be the case, but my OCD will not allow anything with the word mud in it. <laughs> just like I can't do a refugium. They're just so messy. And like the way I do water changes. People say, oh, how you keep your sump so clean? Well, it's the way I do water changes. If I turn off my return pump, my sump will fill up with 100 gallons of water nearly exactly. I empty out the sump. The tank still doesn't even know water change is happening. It's just circulating around, doing its thing. I mix 100 gallons at a time. I completely empty out, empty out the sump, wipe it all down, fill it back up, turn the pump back on. Off you wipe the again. sump down. 
Oh yeah. Wow. Oh yeah. Usually every other every other water change. Wow. So so it looks brand new. It basically looks like the video because I basically did one about a week before that video and I shot that video. Uh, wow. On dinner there. So that's the way it looks. So I went, cleaned it all out. So there's never any detritus or anything like that there because I clean it you all out. You can never visit so. me, man, because my sumps look <laughs> freaking dirty and and the wire management sucks. I mean, it's uh, it's not pretty back there, but you know. To each his yeah, own. We yeah. all have we all we all have our thing, and that mine is kind of yeah, cleanliness. So no, for sure. <clears throat> um, Polo replanter. Yeah, I will be testing mud in the lab shortly. We're going to cause uh, HLLE and try to cure. Yeah, okay. Yeah, some people love that stuff, the mud. All right, sure. So, um, Steve, man, this has been awesome. Dude, I um I really appreciate you taking the uh, the time to be on the uh, the live stream. It really has been a continuation of our conversation in the uh, in the Reef Builders uh, studio. So it's been a lot of fun for me. I've I've learned a lot from you, and I'm sure everybody out there has uh, as well. And and again, are being inspired by your uh, creativity and 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 your talent in terms of keeping reef tanks. So keep it up, man. Love to have you back on again down the uh, down the line. Sure. Yeah. All right, so folks, that's going to do it for this live stream. I really want to thank Steve for being on the uh, live stream. I also want to thank both Bulk Reef Supply and Ecotech Marine for sponsoring it. And I also want to thank all of you for uh, tuning in and participating via the chat. Thank you so much. Also, big thank you to Paul, who is the moderator, as well as the president of the Boston Reefer Society. Please join and support your local reefing clubs. They are so important to the hobby. A reminder that all of these episodes of Wrapping with Reef Bum are available as podcasts on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and Amazon. My next Wrapping with Reef Bum next week will be Thursday, August 24th at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. This will be another good one. Dr. Sanjay Yoshi and Mike Paletta will be on. So that should be another great show. I'm moving the uh, the show in the, in September to Tuesday nights. So just a heads up that we're switching from Thursday nights to Tuesday nights starting, and I think it's in September. So that'll be a switch. If you want to check out the full upcoming schedule of guests, visit reefbum.com under the YouTube section. Until next time, be safe and be well. Later.